The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Hi, it's Matt Jolly from WarbirdRadio.com. Listen, I am thrilled to have Dave Homewood as part of our broadcast family and bring your stories, the stories of the RNZAF, heard right here on Wings Over New Zealand to our global audience. Thanks for listening and hope to hear from you sometime at WarbirdRadio.com. G'day, I'm Steve Vischer. And I'm Grant McCarran. And we're from Plain Crazy Down Under, Australia's aviation show. And you can find us at plainecrazydownunder.com. We reckon for the best coverage of the Kiwi warbird restoration and aviation scene, you can't go past Dave Homewood and the Wings Over New Zealand show. On you, Dave. Yeah, good on you, mate. Yeah, we've got to get to New Zealand soon. Where is that anyway? Well, it's where I grew up. I thought that was Brisbane. The Wings Over New Zealand show would like to acknowledge the great support it's had from Fly DC3. You can fly back in time with Fly DC3 from Ardmore Airport, charter the DC3 Dakota and fly into the past. It's an experience you'll never forget. Fly DC3. Go to www.flydc3.co.nz. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Hi, I'm Dave Homewood. In this episode of the Wings of New Zealand show, I'm presenting the story of Squadron Leader John Leslie Munro, DSO, DFC, Royal New Zealand Air Force. Les Munro is a very well-known pilot. He was one of the original members of number 617 Dambuster Squadron, but he accomplished a lot more in his wartime career than the well-publicised Dambusters raid. I'm very pleased to present this interview which Richard Carstens and I recorded in April 2010 with Les Munro. I was uh, in a wave of five aircraft which was separate from the uh, nine aircraft of, which, of the three Vicks which Gibson left and our route led almost due east to across the North Sea and to a point north of the island of Veland and then turned south and went would down through the Wadden's eye disease and joined a southern route further down. Yeah, well, I, was, I was the second plane off, I think, that night. Um, uh, Bob, was it Bob Marlow? Marlow was the first plane to take off that evening and I was the second plane to take off. And uh, <coughs> as I said, our, our route led across, almost due east across the North Sea and uh, to reach a point about... Uh, just north of the Veland, uh, the island of Veland, which was our turning point. 
to go down and join the southern, the main route uh, down uh, somewhere around about Weasel, I think it was. And I'd, uh, I could, as we approached the coast, I could see the breakers, the breakers ahead, and the sand dunes above them. And I, uh, they, at that stage, I, at that point, I had to gain a bit of height to. Uh, to clear the, the sand dunes and as I was losing height on the other side I, I was hit by a, a flak, 20 mil flak uh, uh, which, which blew a hole in the side of the aircraft, the fuselage fortunately nowhere clear of any uh, of the crew members and uh, severed the intercom communication electrical system so everything went dead we were unable to converse with each other other than lifting the, uh, the flaps of our, of our um, helmets and uh, I asked the flight engineer to ask the uh, wireless operator, thinking that he would be the most appropriate one to, to assess the damage, to go down and have a look to see whether the damage was, was uh, repairable and also to check on the rear gunner to see whether he was okay. And I circled around and as it turned, not, I originally always thought it was the Wadden Sea, but it was the Zyder Sea, but it was the Wadden Sea that they joined apparently. And I circled around there while he went down. When he came back, Percy Pigeon came back and said, no, it would be impossible to, uh, to uh, repair the damage. I made a decision to uh, to return to base. It was imperative that, uh, my reason for that was that it was imperative that the navigator and the wireless operator were able to converse with each other uh, on, on travelling to, to uh, on our route. And that even if we did got to the dam's raid, it, was, it would be impossible for the bomber and the, and the pilot to be able to uh, converse and for the pilot to, to uh, follow the instructions of the bomb hammer as to direction of the attack and that sort of thing. So I made that decision to uh, to return to base and uh, some reports have said that we had a, a consultation between crew well that was not correct and I made that decision myself. The only consultation was between the wireless operator and myself as to whether the damage could be repaired. So I had returned to base and had the dubious distinction of of being the first to land with a live upkeep on board. Some authors have suggested that uh, I disobeyed orders in, in returning with the upkeep on board. They said that they authored these, and I think I know where it was originally generated from, that uh, the crews were told at briefing that on no accounts were they to bring the upkeep back if they had to return to base. <coughs> and they had to drop the jettison the, the upkeep in the sea. Well, that was not correct. An investigation by the squadron executive <coughs> back about 1993 confirmed that no such instructions had been given. So I've I've made uh, uh, representations in, in one or two cases that that was incorrect, and I, I know at least one author that had removed that particular allegation from his book in the second edition. So, uh, and I arrived back at the station without any intercom and without any wireless and uh, unaware that uh, another of the crews, Jeff Rice, 
who had lost his upkeep after hitting the water on the Zyder Z, was also circling around and created a little bit of a consternation in the in the uh, control tower <coughs> as to um, what this other plane was that they could hear but not see because they had no lights. Well, I landed without uh, and without knowing that the other plane was also going around about. So we got away with that quite all right, as it turned out. And so once you were down, uh, what did you do? Did you guys all wait around to see what happened with the well, rest of the mission? <coughs> First of all, I think we had to report it back, of course, to Upson, debriefing. And then, uh, yeah, they went back to our respective messes, officers to the officers' mess and the uh, non-commissioned officers to the sergeant's mess. And I waited the return of the of those crews so that they actually taken part in the operation. And as time went on, of course, it became became evident that that our losses were not were going to be pretty heavy, and as well as a sense of sadness at the loss of these crews, there was also a great deal of of celebration as to the fact that they'd. The squadron had, had uh, demolished the, or, or breached the Mona and the Ada Dams. And to a certain extent, there was a possibility that some uh, minor damage had been created to the Sorpy, of which I was, it was to be a t one of my targets, it was to be the target that I was to attack. Now, when you were waiting in the mess there, according to how the film shows that Barnes Wallace was in the officer's mess, was he really in the officer's mess with you, um, waiting? No, I don't know, no, he was with, I think he was with, uh, in the operations room when he was waiting, yeah. In fact, I think, to start with, I'm, I'm just, I was reading something the other day which implied that he was at group headquarters to start with, he and, uh, with uh, Air Vice Marshal Cochrane and Butch Harris were at, group headquarters until it was known that the, uh, both the Mona and the Ada had been breached and that at that stage they decided to hop in their staff car and travel to Scampton. So, no, uh, and I think that's probably the most accurate uh, uh, undertaking of, or not, the most accurate uh, report of what, what had happened that night. Did you actually have much to do with Barnes Wallace personally? Did you Not a great deal. I think we didn't. Uh, he was present at briefing uh, in the afternoon of uh, the 16th, and that was the first time we'd met him. So and he he uh, so we no we didn't we didn't we'd never met him before. We didn't know him, and uh, I suppose I think we, it was the first time that we appreciated that he had he was a civilian that had something to do with the the. The development of the of the dam and the, of the of the upkeep and the decision to die as a consequence and the decision to attack the dams. Okay. Um, so what was the what was the sort of uh, after effect once everyone was back and you knew it was breached and everything, but then there was a lot of press and stuff, wasn't there, and the king and all that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. Did you you met the king, didn't you? Yes, when he subsequently came onto the squadron, and uh, well, it was about a week later, wasn't it? A month later, was it? Sometime in June. 
early June, wasn't it? Or was it 27th of May? I can't, sorry, I just can't get those dates. That, well, I can't remember them exactly. Yeah, we were all lined up and uh, the King and Queen both came and were introduced to us all. Well, introduced to the captains, which I was one, of course. And then, uh, uh, which was quite a memorable occasion. But coming coming back to the the the, the, the night, the as the crews that those that returned, uh, and it became aware that we had achieved what the the main purpose in attacking the main targets, uh, there was a great deal of celebration that took part in in the mess in the officers' mess. I'm talking about now. Yeah, there's been suggestions at at at. At the time, or the following on from the dam's raid itself, that with, uh, was in the immediate uh, period afterwards, uh, there was great celebrations and uh, of of, uh, of what the squadron had achieved. Later on, questions were asked by would-be authors and other people regarding whether it was justified and whether the raid was uh, the loss of life. Uh, was really acceptable in view of the and uh, and that sort of thing. Um, I personally believe at that stage the German, the, sorry, at that stage the English population was rather down. The dumps morale was low. Uh, the war hadn't been going too well, uh, both in the Middle East and in Germany, and uh, uh, and and I believe that the results from the and uh, the, the, the yeah the breaching of the dams had a terrific effect on morale of the english people and i think from that point of view alone the raid was justified the other aspect was the actual operation itself whether it was successful it was certainly successful in that the, the two major targets were breached uh, some damage was caused to the sorpi and while the loss of life was was high, at least the objective had been achieved. And from that point of view, I believe it was a success. So, um, I, I think I think at the end of the day, and it, through history, I think you, you, there have been instances of of particular targets in warfare that have been uh, subject to to isolated and special operations and attacks and and while in many cases greatly successful but at the same time have had a, a rather major loss of life and I think this is an ex part of part of warfare and I don't believe that the squadron the decision to attack the dams could be could be criticized because the fact that we had lost 53 lives in, in, in out of war operation and I personally don't agree with that uh, suggestion that perhaps it, the, the raid wasn't justified. You were touching on before about uh, the, what happened in the mess afterwards um, that night um, in the officers mess. Yeah. Um, yeah, there was a great deal of celebration took part, and of course, um, uh, it was daylight. Had daylight come, and they were still going. 
And it was interesting that the 57th Squadron that was based on at Scampton that time was shared the station with us, had been uh, rather critical of the fact that this squadron had been training and flying from Scampton and were not operating. Uh, when were they going to do something? And they arrived in the midst of breakfast in that morning and has the remnants of the remaining crews celebrating uh, and, uh, and 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 uh, as a result of the, that all that training that we did, so they then they realised, of course, that um, I didn't realise at the time until afterwards that the loss of life had been rather heavy, and uh, but I think a lot of the our, our remaining crew, the returning crews, some 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 of us were pretty. Uh, sad at the loss of life, but most of us that had been operating on, on the main squadrons, on the main bomber force, had already been uh, 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 not subjected, but already been, um, uh, what's the word I want to use, um, associated with loss of life from the normal operations. and. It became it becomes the loss of life in those seconds became became a, a norm, a part and parcel of what we were doing, and uh, I think that the fact that we'd lost the two flight commanders and one or two of the others were uh, was tragic in in that sense, but within a day or two, that's put in the back of your mind, and you concentrate or look at what you're going to do next. And what actually did you do next? When was the next time that you guys started training to go on the next mission? Well, we we, we carried on training, high level, tra no, low level training, uh, and for next for about almost a couple of months, I think, we went through a hiatus period of, and it, it, it almost appeared that the powers that be were not quite clear on what they were going to do with this squadron that has been formed for a special purpose. And in due course we did, we started off I think in July with doing some daylight raids to, not day, sorry, some some shuttle raids to, to northern Italy. And then because of the distance we had to go we landed at Bleeder in North Africa in Algiers and bombed uh, north of Milan and uh, and uh, one or two of the other towns on the way back. And we did about two or three of these shuttle trips, so it was not uh, so. It was nothing very much of major importance. It didn't appear to be anyway <coughs> until I think it was the third of September when we'd shifted to from we'd already shifted then from Scampton to Coningsby. Uh, and uh, a raid with a, a low-level operation was planned or scheduled for to attack the uh, Dortmund Ems canals using 12,000 pound uh, uh, blockbusters, thin case blockbusters and these were just going to be rolled into the into the Dortmund Ems canals and try and breach the size of the dams. and. Um, there was eight aircraft took off one night and on the one night, uh, for I think it was 14th of September, I think, 
and uh, after that one on the North Sea, they were recalled because of uh, 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 mist and fog over the target that night, and uh, they were recalled. And on the on turning to come back, David Maltby uh, must have dipped the wing, and he was a fight commander, a new fight commander, and they crashed into the sea with no survivors. So there was a, a rather a tragic that night and a loss of a crew through non-enemy action. The next night, and further, further eight, or the same eight, same seven plus another one, went the next night. And that was probably the most tragic operation of the squadron's history where we lost five aircraft out of the eight through a combination of circumstances, very heavy flak emplacement, poor visibility, <coughs> and uh, they had great deal of difficulty in 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 deciding their in um, identifying their release point. So that was a tragic consequence of of um, probably the most disastrous one of the war. And it was and we lost the new squadron commander uh, that night uh, with the bulk of Gibson's crew. Uh, from then on, it was not long before. Leonard Cheshire arrived, took over the squadron, and uh, we, at that stage, uh, in conjunction with Mickey Martin, who had been promoted to a, to a flight commander, uh, were not satisfied. Cheshire was not satisfied, and uh, with the uh, the marking uh, for us by PFF, and he decided, in conjunction with Mickey Martin, that we'd do our own low-level marking, do our own marking at low level. And uh, that was uh, commenced with, uh, or started with, with Lancaster. So we we bombed, we marked at low level with Lancaster, in which I was one marking, and uh, with quite successful results. And uh, we were bombing individual targets, mainly in France, admittedly, but uh, still protected by the Germans. And uh, uh, it achieved such good results, and uh, that. Uh, Cheshire eventually persuaded the powers of be that the, he and uh, the, with the squadron should be provided with mosquitoes to mark the targets rather than the, than using Lancasters, which Lancasters are a bit heavy and cumbersome for low marking at low level, and uh, mosquitoes would be much better. So Cheshire uh, uh, took over the leader remained the leader of the squadron uh, flying, uh, flying mosquitoes and he pointed and he, he transferred uh, David Shannon, the Australian, and uh, two of the uh, uh, Terry Kearns, the New Zealander, and uh, Jerry Hawke to as pilots of the mosquitoes and their crews then became redundant except for the navigators. And uh, they, uh, we developed this system of, of low-level marking uh, which proved so uh, so satisfactory that uh, uh, the uh, um, AOC of five group aircraft, Air, Air Vice Master Ralph Cochrane decided that this system should be adopted by his group as a whole, five group as a whole, and uh, so that we had a trial on the night uh, on uh, on Brunswick town of Brunswick where the PFF were to mark and uh, or was to illuminate the targets rather and uh, the uh, mosquitoes would mark Brunswick and 
so happened, and I was the liaison between Cheshire at low level and myself and the rest of the squadron at high level. And uh, on the way into the, it was interesting that the, on the way into the target, the one aircraft of the force was broadcasting all their chatter and the commands and chatter that was taking place in the aircraft and it's disturbing the the rest of the, and certainly preventing Cheshire and uh, to to conversing with uh, me and the rest of his markers because of the interference from the from the chatter that was going on. After some time, after listening to the chatter that was taking place, we identified the uh, culprit as a member of the PFF squadron, and I got my wireless operator to ask all PFF aircraft to check their their uh, their VHF sets and uh, on that happening uh, there was a click and there was silence from then on and but at the same time the weather wasn't too bad a lot of cloud about and and the uh, illuminating of the targets wasn't very accurate and the the target was not that that attack was as a trial was not very successful there was uh, the targets were the, 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 the yeah the targets were not hit uh, with, with um, any degree of accuracy. Um, about two nights later, uh, we were scheduled to the same operation was scheduled to attack Munich, and uh, which was going to be a very long trip for the mosquitoes, and uh, there was some question as to whether they could get to Munich and back uh, with uh, with the fuel that they were able to carry. So eventually they, the four mosquitoes took down, went down to uh, a drone just south of, uh, in Kent, uh, and uh, took off and uh, uh, flew from there and marked the targets and flew back just almost with empty tanks. But the Munich was marked by uh, the flares illuminated the targets all right and, uh, and uh, Cheshire and the other mosquitoes uh, dropped their markers on on the town of Munich and the resulting uh, uh, attack from I think it was another about 450 Lancasters did so much damage in that one did more damage in that one attack than all the other previous attacks right through the war had been had done so that so as a that that was the last as a as a as a trial, that proved very successful, and that that system was adopted uh, by the gym, the bomber force as a whole, uh, low level marking, uh, and uh, uh, and backing up by by markers from up above. So then six one seven reverted back to uh, attacking just single single targets, and uh, led by General Leonard Cheshire, which proved. On the whole, we 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 did a lot of we carried out attacks on a lot of factories, uh, Clements around uh, aero engine works, uh, uh, explosive factories, and all that sort of thing. Uh, those type of uh, targets, uh, major uh, railway yarding, and uh, with great results. And and uh, during my time in the squadron, and then we. Reached and after the Munich, after Munich, we we took off. Um, we were taken off operations for 
to train for another Pacific operation. And uh, this and this upset us to a certain, upset the senior members of the squadron to a certain extent because they, to be taking off operations was not was not uh, 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 what what we believed that we were there for. Um, and in due course, it turned out that uh, uh, we were training for a spoof, spoof operation on the night of D-Day. And uh, uh, this involved, that was uh, Operation Taxable, it was called, the code name. And that was to uh, fly at uh, 3,000 feet at 180 miles per hour and flying oblong circuits uh, for two hours continuously and uh, dropping window, which was aluminium foil strips which was used by the major, uh, the main bomber force to distort German radar uh, and stop them from identifying individual aircraft. So we're dropping, the idea was that we flew in these circuits at uh, two, uh, two minutes, 30 seconds on the outward trip. This is in the English, English Channel on a route directed on, uh, in line with the uh, Calais area. And uh, we'd fly two hours, uh, two minutes, 30 seconds on the way down and we'd return, do a, uh, a, a turn uh, of one minute uh, to return on a reciprocal course at uh, two minutes, 10 seconds. And as a result of that difference in timing, the uh, the whole pattern of uh, eight aircraft, which was on each wave, eight aircraft on each one two miles separate from each other, well, the whole pattern would be advancing towards the French coast at uh, eight knots, equivalent of eight knots. And the 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 the, the, the crews the. The, 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 the crews in the back of the aircraft would be dropping window, these bundles of window at uh, every four and a half seconds, uh, at, and, and increasing in size as we approached the French coast, uh, and on the way back re re reducing in size. So this window was being dropped all the time to, do, to, uh, to uh, eliminate or to uh, completely uh, Make the German radar ineffective. The, the, it would show up in just in a in a in a in a uh, um, just uh, not individual, but a complete blanket of, of static. And uh, Leonard Chester flew as my second pilot that night. Um, all the, and as a result of the uh, the long and tedious time of flying continuously on this doing the same thing over and over again. We had more or less two crews in each aircraft. Uh, and two, and uh, the, the, uh, the crews at the back of the aircraft, or the two navigators, one was navigating the aircraft, and the other was uh, signalling by, by a system of red and green lights of when to start uh, dropping in for the, the crew down the back to stop dropping. Uh, window on the way to window stop at the end of the the, the, the the first leg or the legs when to start again when they did the the uh, turn uh, 
and that sort of thing. But the rest of the crew were able to have periods of spelling, of, of having a having a spell for 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 every now and then. So the each aircraft had thirteen or fourteen crew members in it, and. Uh, after two hours, after one hour, Cheshire, Leonard Cheshire took over from me, flew a second hour. After two hours, a reserve aircraft of, uh, or the second wave of eight, eight aircraft took, uh, arrived, and each aircraft uh, flew or arrived at the same time as the, our first, the first aircraft were just commencing their first outward run and the second aircraft would arrive at 500 feet above us and fly that same circuit. And at the end of the return circuit, the, the first aircraft would depart and the second aircraft would, would lower, came down to the similar height. And we only had 90 seconds in which to, the two, two waves to complete and take over the, 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 the operation. So uh, that was... Uh, a, a, an operation that required a great deal of of expertise of adhering strictly adhering to the height to airspeed to direction any deviation from that would of course concern in the on the German radar so it was a very important operation although to allege it to, to an extent that that, that, that perhaps all the senior pilots were most upset that it was not uh, we weren't dropping bombs, we weren't causing damage to infrastructure and all that sort of thing. And uh, but, but the point of view of the success of the operation over four hours, uh, it was believed, or it turned out, that it created enough concern in the, on the, in the German sector to delay sending reinforcements to Normandy, the beachhead. Uh, apart from the, our, our Eight aircraft, each wave of eight aircraft had created a 16-mile front, and there were naval ships down below, creating noises that would be similar to that of a of an armada approaching the sea. So that was a very important uh, um, aspect of uh, of, of our uh, uh, existence. It was only after that, there was not shortly after that, that uh, we bombed the Samoa Tunnel, which is uh, on the route from northern Italy and that area, uh, which uh, uh, was the route that reinforcements would be taken, particularly armour by the Germans, and that was the first trip, the first operation that we carried 12,000 tallboys, and that was a smaller version of Barnes Wallace's original concept that, of a 10-ton bomb that he believed in the first instance would be required to breach the the, the German dams, uh, but this was a and and uh, as it happened, we we one 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 of the bombs uh, fell a bit off course, but right on the line of the of the railway line, uh, some distance up the hill, and it penetrated right through the earth and exploded, creating a major damage and uh, preventing the Germans from using that. Um, uh, for to reinforce the Normandy beachhead. Um, subsequently, uh, we uh, were scheduled to take. We were deputed to take the uh, the Le Havre and Boulogne 
e-boat and u-boat pens, which were, particularly the e-boats, were causing concern for the uh, Allied Armada. And uh, I had the privilege of, of leading the uh, Lancasters of the squadron in daylight information on the attack, the first attack on Lee Harve, and that was the first daylight operation we had. We'd taken part on right through our existence. And uh, we had uh, a support of uh, a Spitfire Squadron uh, on that day. Uh, we did a terrific damage in 1983, I think. We did a trip through France, and the U-boat pens and that was still in evidence of six foot thickness of concrete that had been just uh, smashed to pieces and uh, was still uh, higgly-piggly and without having as they lay after the after the uh, after the ram the, the the attack itself. The next two nights later, no, next night I think we went to do we did a similar rain on Boulogne on the same sort of target uh, in daylight again, but not information that time. And I think as a result of those trips, those two trips, we, uh, it's been, um, it was recorded that we put uh, destroyed 133 e-boats, so must have made a major difference to the to the German attempts to uh, to attack the armada of ships. So um, from then on, we went, um, uh, we attacked, we attacked. Uh, all these V2, V2 and V3 sites at high level using uh, the Torboy um, again, and uh, with Cheshire and the Mosquito Boys marking um, uh, at low level. Uh, and, uh, that, and it was on the 7th of July, I think, 7th of July, that we, Chair Cochrane, had decided that Cheshire and uh, Dave Shannon and Joe McCarthy and myself, all flight commanders, would uh, would um, should have done enough and should be taken off operations. So that ended my uh, uh, association with 617 Squadron, and uh, um, I was a bit sorry that I hadn't done the 60 trips. So I was a bit too short, and uh, I was then posted to uh, took over 1690 Bomber Defence Training Flight at. Uh, the e the using the tour boys again was very effective on the V2 sites, uh, penetrating masses of great masses of dirt, uh, soil and that, and, and penetrating into the underground structures and blowing and destroying them. And once if those that were pretty accurate, those that were closely hit or were um, accurate, uh, did tremendous badness and put them out of action for the rest of the war. What sort of height did you drop them from? Oh, we were dropping around about 18,000, 16, 18,000 feet. And the Lancasters. Could, could you see quite big explosions? Um, well, the pilot couldn't, but yeah, the, the bomb aimers and that would be able to see. But no, those that were penetrated, no, you wouldn't see much. You'd see a bit of a, probably a bit of soil and stuff and, and dust. Uh, in my estimation, anyway, you'd see a little bit of that. Depending on how much, there was, I think it was, some of them were situated in hill country where they buried it, they tunneled into the hills to create the, the pads for the, uh, for the V2, V2 uh, bomb sites. One thing I was wondering, when um, Cochrane said he Squadron started to get new pilots to replace the crews mm. that um, had been killed, 
Were those new pilots often straight out of ODU, or did they always get the experienced pilots up on the squadrons? <coughs> That's an interesting point. That to, for most, well, certainly when all the time I was on the squadron, and and for the early stage when Willie Tate was on the squadron, uh, they were generally experienced crews. One of the requirements that were indicated when when they circulated the the uh, squadrons, uh, existing squadrons on five group, to form the special squadron, they were looking for for crews that were nearing the end of their first tour of thirty trips, or just commencing the second, and that sort of uh, level or that sort of um, uh, yeah level of experience was kept for a certain for for quite a while, but all of us. Uh, but but and and it wasn't long. I think I think it might have still been in Willie Tate's time as CEO uh, that they started taking pilots or crews from from out of I don't know how many, but Arthur Joplin in 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 Auckland was one of them. He went straight from out of to there. Now how many others I don't know. And those are. He often says, well, he just couldn't understand why uh, he, he, as a Sprog crew, had been sent to uh, 617. And it was, of course, 617 achieved major uh, prominence in, in the destruction of these turbots. That was my, after my time, of course. And they achieved, uh, did a marvellous job in, in destroying the, uh, the turbots. And I often say, well, People say to me, well, would you give us a talk on the dams raid and what a marvellous job they did. But they also did a marvellous job in, in attacking the turpits. It wasn't an easy, it wasn't an easy operation because it was so far away. And they had to, uh, you know, schedule, fly up the lossy mouth, they had to schedule, fly over and then come down to, to uh, uh, avoid any question of the Germans getting uh, knowledge of the of the raid and sending up fighters, although they was, should have done that in the last raid, and through some some reason the Germans didn't get there until too late. But yeah, uh, and then subsequently the squadron flew using the Barnes Wallace's ten ten ton bomb at towards the end of the war, where they took the bomb doors off completely and. Uh, they achieved that distinction of, of, of flying, of using the ten-ton bomb. And what was your um, your work when you went on to the um, the next phase? Was oh. it was a heavy conversion unit, or no, no, no. I took over a, a 1690 bomber defence training flight, okay. and that was um, uh, which uh, Air Marshal Cochrane, Air Vice Marshal Cochrane talked to me when he came down to tell us that we finished I taken his operation. He said he he was he wasn't he was rather somewhat concerned about the the results that were emanating from this uh, flight and he would like me to concentrate on improving uh, fighter ability of the bomber crews in night fighting uh, evasive tactics and that sort of thing and uh, uh, we were the flight when I arrived on it was uh, all, had all hurricanes except one mosquito which was taken away fairly quickly afterwards because I said there was no point in having one 
separate one type of plane distinct from all the others. And I uh, uh, was sent, I was, I was arranged that I should go over and convert to a single engine aircraft. And I can't remember the, uh, uh, and funnily enough, it's not recorded in my, my uh, logbook. I did about, uh, I did one, one circuit uh, in a Harvard under a squadron leader instructor and he got out at the end of the, we landed and he got out and he said, off you go, do half a dozen circuits and that's what I did. And uh, it was quite interesting really from four, four, four motors to one. Uh, so we, and our, our job was to uh, uh, be the fighter in, in, uh, in uh, attacking the, uh, the Lancasters of, of five group. They would, uh, they would uh, uh, schedule their, uh, on their, their cross-country training reads a visit to the, where the, our squadron was, which our flight was, which was originally at Scampton and then at Methingham. And uh, in daylight, evasive tackets. So our job was to attack, to be the fighter attacking the uh, the, uh, the Lancasters to give the pilots uh, practice in evasive manoeuvres, the corkscrewing and that sort of thing, and the gunners to uh, uh, they had cameras and uh, to uh, demonstrate their ability as, as as gunners and how accurate they were in in uh, in following the fighters. Down, so we went, um, and it was we would. I it was um, part of the program as we were bulk. Cheshire wanted us, uh, not Cheshire, sorry, Cochrane wanted us to concentrate on night activities, and it wasn't long before I started night flying with with um, um, with uh, night fighter affiliation. We still carried out night, uh, daylight uh, training uh, with the Lancasters, but the concentrator was, he wanted us, the Cochrane wanted us to concentrate on, on fight affiliation at night to give the uh, crews uh, practice in, in evasive tactics if attacked by German night fighters. I didn't enjoy that aspect very much. I was worried about whether I'd pull out of, of my attack on the uh, on the Lancasters soon enough and I, I never I didn't have any close calls but I always worried a little bit that maybe I wouldn't see the Lancaster because well, they would come up the Lancaster would arrive over the station leave their lights on would circuit the station and we would the, uh, we would take off in the hurricanes and and uh, from eight on the uh, on the Lancaster with their lights on and then when we clear the station we would uh, by arrangement, we'd switch the lights off, and then we'd, we'd in, in, in involve in uh, in uh, fighter affiliation practice, and then the, when it's finished after half an hour or whatever, the Lancaster would lead us back to our parent station. So I did what twelve months, I think, on on sixteen ninety. I think I did two hundred hours on Link, on Hurricanes, which was a bit of a change from. Flying four-engine Lancasters. The, the actual daytime um, practices like that, that must have been quite fun there, wasn't it? Oh yes, it was quite fun. Yeah. It was quite interesting, the very first trip I did. I think it was, a, I'm not sure, no, no, it wasn't. 
it might have been second or second. Anyway, one of the early trips I did in daylight, I just said, oh, I'll do a barrel On our way back to this corner, I'll do a barrel roll, uh, and, uh, which I hadn't done since I'd been at New Plymouth on Tiger Moth. And uh, I did the first part of the barrel, and we got upside down and pulled, pulled back on the stick instead of pushing forward. I was on a, doing, doing a, a dive, and I was, got out of that all right, and it was a very sheepish Munro that sort of got back into, for mate on the, on, the, on the Lancaster, which was leading me back to base. So that's where you were when the war ended, is it? Yeah, no, not really. When uh, V Day, yeah, well, it was when VE Day occurred. Uh, v, when after VE Day, I applied. I time I thought I'd had time for a, for a change, and I applied to transfer to Transport Command, which was engaged nearly always, nearly mainly in in flying planes from the States and Canada over to England. I thought I'd, that I'd be better doing that than, well, it was a change. And then I was on leave to, before going, taking up my time with with the Transport Command that VJ Day happened. And uh, I was in London at the time. And I thought, oh, blow. What reason should I have for staying on here? I said, my mother died when I was uh, at, at, in, on 617. My father was in his 70s and I thought, well, I think I'd better go home. So I played for, I went along to New Zealand House and within two days I'd been okayed for to come back on the Andes and arrived back here in New Zealand, I think it was early November, 6th of November, something like that. How did it feel to be back and, and how did you adjust after all of that kind of so-called excitement and how did you adjust to being back again? I, I must be a peculiar sort of a person, I don't know, because I, the, the, the war the war didn't have any major effect on my attitude to life and that sort of thing. I think I was pleased to be at home. One of the tragedies of, tragedies of my life has been the fact that I lost my mother um, when I was on 617 and uh, had left to go to the war when I was still young. Had gone straight from high school into farming as an employment. Never spent much time, never able to spend much time talking to my mother adult to adult. And uh, that, and I, I'd lost that ability, I'd lost that opportunity to, to be able to do that. And I've never been able to, some, there are some parts of my mother's life that I'm completely unaware of what happened. And uh, I, I, that was, to me, was a tragedy. And at the same time, once she died, my sister, uh, Doris was in the army at, you know, she was in the wax. And when she died, she she got permission to uh, to, uh, to be discharged, which she did to look after my ageing father. And while it was good to see Dad, uh, he was a very staunch old Scotsman, and uh, 
we never we were never very close in the sense of uh, of family. And uh, my brother had already, as a prisoner of war, he had been a prisoner of war for three and a half years. He had already got home before me, and he was home living with me at the family home. And uh, uh, to say what I, I think I was, yeah, I was pleased to get back to civilian life, but. That four years that I had was a big was a big chunk of my early life. Where if I hadn't it hadn't been war, I would have been uh, making my way in life and perhaps uh, uh, developing some business aspects or or developing a a, a thread of. Or what I should be doing in later life, but um, I think the war to, to me, the war had the effect on me of being uh, of convert of not converting of of, of of not teaching either of of, of uh, enabling me to be able to get on with my fellow men to be able to. Uh, Accept authority to be able to exercise authority, uh, and I think in that respect it it was beneficial. It proved beneficial to me in later life, as a transpired here. And what did how where did your life go from from there? Just very you know top sort of line. I you were mayor of one of the towns, mm -hmm. weren't you later on? Yeah, later in life, I, to start with, I uh, first thing, of course, was when you arrived back, the rehabilitation department, you had all sorts of uh, schemes and that sort of thing to uh, introduce you to civilian life and that sort of thing. I took a five and a half year course at uh, refresher course in sheep farming, sheep and cattle farming at Massey College to start with. And then my previous... Uh, Employer, my last employer before I entered the Air Force was in the State Advances Corporation, and he persuaded me to. Uh, he offered me a part-time job to start, not a casual job to start with, which became a permanent job with the State Advances Corporation involving land valuation and settlement of ex-servicemen on land. And I took that. I worked for 14 years with the State Advances Corporation and spent the first five years in in Blenheim, where I got married. Brought up, had three boys there, and before moving back to Gisborne for a short while, and then to Nelson in charge of Nelson Marlborough West Coast, and from there to the Auckland area. And uh, at that stage, I had, uh, I was in line for promotion to a head office job uh, in the state as a supervising appraiser, assistant supervising appraiser, and it so happened that I that I drew a farm at the same time as that uh, farm and a ballot at the same time as I was appointed to that job. And it so happened that I was on state Great Barrier Island with the Commissioner of Crown Lands at that stage, uh, doing a report or carrying out an investigation and completing a report for government as whether government money should be put into the rural sector of Great Barrier Island. And uh, we spent two or three nights each night debating the pros and cons of farming versus going to Wellington. And eventually we decided that being farming and more family orientated, 
I think that the farming might be the best way to go, and which I made that we made that decision and we had no regrets of that. Brought up five children on the on the farm, and uh, eventually sold out the major farm the, the farm property in 1975, and bought a smaller place out of Tikwiri. In uh, about 1965, I had uh, oh, that was in 1961, February 61. I took over my farm. It's just south of Tikwiti, with 1,080 acres. At that time, um, shortly after that, I became involved, or not shortly after, 1965, I was invited to, to stand for council, Waitama District County Council, which I did do and was elected. And uh, eventually, in 19, after amalgamation, about the time of amalgamation of local government, I was... Uh, elected chairman of the, um, the existing chairman had retired after some 35 years, I think, as chair. And, uh, uh, and then within a year, the, the, uh, the uh, designation changed from chairman to mayor. I became mayor of the Waitama District Council in 1989, which I remained for another 17 years before retiring in 95. Over the years, has your war years and the things you saw come back to you very often, or does it stay in the past? Yeah, well, it, yeah, it was forced on me in, in the sense that I was, in the early days, I had quite a number of requests to give talks on the dams raid, which I did do from, this was mainly when I was in Blenheim, I had to go to Timaru and Dunedin and a few other places they flew me to, and I gave quite a number of talks then. And and subsequently, that I had I had, had I was very occasionally would be invited elsewhere to give a talk, but it's only in recent years since I've been in here that I got heavily involved in 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 giving talks to uh, Rovers, Rovers Rotary Clubs, all the, and various groups and organisations, and the, the 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 remembrance of events while I was on the squadron have been really forced on me, not well, it's become natural because I had to be sure of my facts and all that sort of thing and uh, I, uh, I've i never lost, and I, as, I, as you're probably aware, I, I'm, I'm still engaged in, in, in writing articles and giving TV interviews and that sort of thing and probably a little bit more uh, I've become a little bit more in demand because of the fact that I'm the last surviving pilot of, of the original raid. It wasn't until recent years that I really uh, became familiar with the heavy losses that Bomber Command suffered in the early years of the war. It really surprised me and, and uh, concerned me that they were, we were the other, or England was was unprepared really in that sense of the of of, a, of, a, of an attacking force to create much damage. We was the, the use of Bowfighters and Bremens and Blemens and all those 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 twin engine planes in those early years were ineffectual. They were too subject to 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 attack by German fighters and that sort of thing. And but as the war went on and the the development of 
the next stage of of Hamdens and uh, Wesleys and those type of bombers and Wellingtons uh, started to change the emphasis of uh, the bomber commander's attacking model. Uh, and then the development of the four-engine, the, the, the Stirling, the Halifax and the Lancaster was really sort of the beginning of, um, of a major attacking force that was creating damage on the Germans popular on the German Germany as a whole and the population. Uh, if you ask me whether I think mass bombing was justified or not, I have some res slight reservations, but I believe that the fact that the Germans had did major damage by bombing Coventry, the continual bombing of, of London that forced the population to the bulk of the population to, to spend the nights in, in uh, the underground stations. I had I had no I've I've got nothing I've got no conscience. I've no conscience about the fact that I must have killed women and children in, in the main bombing range that I carried out. But I accept that as part of war. That we didn't start the war. Germans started the war. And therefore, they must be, uh, except, well, Germans at the time of the of the end of the war, the Germans must accept responsibility for the heavy loss of life that, that they were subjected to by the by bombing force. Whether Butch Harris's policy of blanket bombing was was justified. What would be the alternative? A feasible alternative to, to blanket bombing. I think it carried the war to the Germans. There's no doubt about that. One of the major uh, targets, of course, as far as bombing concerned, was the industrial and manufacturing industries of German, of Germany. And generally speaking, uh, they weren't isolated from the towns that we were that, that we were targeting, and to see and and the the use of so many bombers four and five six hundred seven hundred eight hundred nine hundred bombers in one raid, almost impossible to be able to say that okay they were all going to attack. One particular area, which was the site of uh, certain manufacturing industries, and I think that sort of led to the to the acceptance that the Allies that the bomber command could not attack, could not achieve destruction of the manufacturing industries without also attacking the civilian population or the areas of civilian and. Uh, I think it was also recognised that okay, Germany as a whole, the German population as a whole, had accepted uh, Nazism in the form that it was, and and uh, and the fact that it was the Nazism was 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 trying to overturn over uh, yeah, overturn England and uh, uh, and and they would be doing to us what we are doing to them, I think, 
and as I said earlier, I think, to a large extent, I think the bombing, bomber commands activities over the last couple of years did terrific damage to Germany as a whole, and must have, if you read some uh, views of, of of the German population that was subjected to those raids, uh, where they 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 cursed Hitler. Uh, for getting them into this position, I think uh, you you can uh, on 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 that basis. I think that it it accelerated the bombing command. I think accelerated the end of the war. Certainly, the Normandy landings and uh, the Allied ground forces did achieve major uh, uh, results as far as that's concerned. But uh, the, the the German war effort from the point of its uh, uh, manufacturing industries and that had reached the stage, I think, where uh, they would, could hardly continue to support the war effort in the in the in the supply of weapons and 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 uh, that sort of thing. Uh, as I said earlier, I, I I have no I have no nothing. I don't feel any conscious that in fact I did. Uh, no doubt. Well, but I don't know, but I've no doubt that I did was responsible for the death of women and children in, in, in those large raids on the German cities. Well, that's a good, that's a, it's a nice sort of big picture for people again, you know, a lot of the public, mm. their knowledge is very low of mm. the subject, so it's a good. Mm. Uh, another um, question, uh, I've just got a couple left. Um, how how young men, you know, like live day to day in the face of such intense um, danger and death, you know, loss of other crews, and um, how did you do it day in day out, week in week out? How did you sort of cope, or did you did you just block the danger out? Did you was treated as a game? Like I mean, that's some of the interesting things of the sort of culture of bomber command. How 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 did you? manage and how did the, the chaps manage? And I th to answer that question I think uh, you'd have to say that probably every one of us was probably different in, in the way we accepted our job and I I admit that I accept that I was a fatalist in, 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 in respect of whether I would survive the war or otherwise. If I was going to get the chop so be it but I had a job to do as an individual, I had a job to do, and that was to fly my plane on operations and do the best I could to get my back, my crew back home. Um, I think that, in the main, we all accepted the bulk. Perhaps there was a minor, very minor percentage where uh, crews or individuals couldn't carry on, and uh, you'd. you'd I think you'd categorise that as, as individuals rather than crews. Very, very seldom would you ever get, did, did it ever happen that the crew had to be taken off operations because they uh, couldn't carry on. Uh, but in some cases, individuals did have to be taken off because they couldn't handle, they couldn't handle the, the danger of not surviving. Um, I... This was this 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 feeling of, of concern or of uh, uh, was never evident. I don't. It was very seldom was evident in 
in, in the day-to-day life of the air crews. Our friendships would develop off-duty uh, and after, and when, when we were not operating, maybe for a day or two at a then, there would be time to uh, socialise in the mess afterwards and to indulge in, in other in part, pastime activities such as playing bridge or playing croquette and all those sort of things. And uh, I think that sort of, the, the, the comradeship that developed in those off-duty hours was quite important in the developing uh, respect and for each other's, for individual crews and for other crews. And it, this, this was, a, I think, a pattern that, that, that developed right through the war as far as I was concerned. I, uh, I made some very close friends. One of the one of the, coming back to, for a moment to the six one seven squadron. I believe that one of the strengths of six one seven was its cosmopolitan makeup. We had quite a large number of Canadians, quite a large number of Australians, a few New Zealanders, and a couple of Americans comprised our squadron. As uh, in 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 the the whole in the squadron as a whole. And we finished up under the Cheshire with Cheshire as an Englishman, and uh, 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 Dave Shannon, Australian, myself as a New Zealander, and Joe McCarthy as a, an American, all as flight commanders. That was to often referred to as the Cheshire era or the old, the old gang or something like that. There, and I think, and they, they, that fact had a tremendous. Uh, result in, in post-war years when the squadron developed a, uh, created a, an association and had reunions right through the war and that that uh, relationship between the aircrew themselves and one another was transferred to the wives and there were many great number of close friendships have developed in the war through uh, so, so to the, the women of, of the of the of the crews of the six one seven squadron, and I think that that was been a major plus as far as six one seven was concerned. It was not a singular nationality squadron like just Englishmen or Canadians, and that they had that 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 type of squadron had disadvantages. But the I think the the six one seven gained from that. Cosmopolitan on nature of its squadron. What about also, apart from nationalities, the fact that in a particular crew of men, you might have men, people from very, very different backgrounds. One of the things that some guys in Bomber Command talk about is you, it moulded people together that might otherwise not have anything to do with each other. You might have a real working class ex-miner sitting next to the son of a lord or... Um, you know, a couple of chaps just out of Oxford University sitting, you know, working in the crew alongside a guy from the country from New Zealand. Like, and normally we might not, especially in England where, you know, society is mm. quite stratified, we might not come together, yet mm. you join this team of Bomber Command and mm. you work closely with other men. And, uh, you know, that's quite different from fighting, you know, you're in your own plane and... Um, do you think that's true that the sort of esprit de corps or the, the you know the, the, the nature of the, of the work at Bomber Command made 
groups, you know, made teams of men that otherwise wouldn't. Yeah, I, I think that's correct. I, I mean, a crew of, of seven individuals had to be had to be part of a, of a single uh, component of, of, of uh, air crew and, and I think in the cases where it so happened that one particular individual was not uh, compatible or didn't fit, in those cases it, it did occur where they were taken off taken off that crew and replaced by somebody else. So it did happen and that that was yeah, that was necessary, I think, that and probably a lot of that fell back or the the the, the, the formation or the development of SPD Corps amongst the crew members and the cohesion into one unit depended and related to the pilot or to the captain of the aircraft. Depending on his his ability to to mould the crew his crew into one unit, and I think individuals within the crew uh, realised, of course, that they were a component of that crew and that their contribution was essential to the harmonious relationship that were developed and the over 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 subsequent time while they operated together. Do you think also that the, 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 some servicemen, and I think from all branches, talk about um, one of the ways that you kind of overcome or forgot your fear of being harmed or being killed or being injured was um, you don't want to let your mates or your team down? Is that a sort of a strong part of the culture of bomber yeah. communities? I'm not sure that I can comment on that with any degree of uh, accuracy or any degree of, uh, yeah. Uh, individual. Yeah. Um, no, I, I presume it did, it did occur, it would have occurred, I think, in, in many crews where an individual felt that maybe, you know, he, he should be, he's, he's, uh, he's letting the crew down or something like that. But... I don't think it happened to any greater D. It, it's, in retrospect, if you look back on Bomber Command as a whole, I think the development of uh, comradeship and, uh, and uh, uh, their importance, individuals' importance within the crew itself, developed on the whole right across crew of Bomber Command, I think. Uh, I may be completely wrong in in this attitude, but I think I think if you read history, I think that that was what generally developed. Could you give a really sort of top level, um, perhaps background and objective of Pathfinder Force? Well, as I understand it, and, and you know, I'm not I, I'm not privy to the actual original development of the Pathfinder course, or force rather, but my understanding is that uh, as uh, Bombing Command developed, there became a need, a real need for more accurate uh, identification of targets and more 
more accurate uh, marking of targets compared with every crew that were scheduled to attack a given target doing their own thing. I'm trying to identify, identify and, uh, and, and bomb individually. I think the, the, the sense, the, the requirement developed for a more accurate type of, of bombing, of marking targets, so that as for, for special, specialised crews to be doing that marking to enable the brain bomber force to bomb those targets. And I think the PFF force uh, group was developed for that particular point in mind, and I think that probably in in the main that was successful. There were always those odd occasions where even PFF were not accurate, failed in in accurately identifying particular targets to the extent that uh, that the raids of many so quite a number of operations were failures from the sense that most of the bombs were dropped on some some other area rather than the target itself. But who, not really for me to criticise, uh, but I accept that uh, in the main, as far as the main bomber force was concerned, the PFF played a major role in the success of the main bomber command operations. Thanks, Steve, that's great. I've got two quick questions. One, the, the dog, um, Nigger mm. has become world famous. It's probably the most famous mascot that any squadron ever had. But um, did six one six one seven squadron have any other mascots or pets or anything throughout its career that you were there? No. Okay. Mm. The other one is, what did you think of the nineteen fifty five film? Were you happy with it? Uh, uh, yeah. Originally, my first impression it was quite good, but it was still under. Secrecy, the, the the operation and the, the or the development of the bomb and that sort of thing, was still under the Official Secrets Act. So there were a number of things that they've taken, they took um, license with. And some some of them might have been bringing a human aspect, and the the bomb itself was shaped differently. The selection of the crews, in my view did not occur as shown on film, that, that Gibson and, Tone and Saunders was picked them from the, the operational board and group headquarters. I was, I'm quite adamant in my view that I went on to six, as a result of volunteering, and I think the other blokes on 617 did. Gibson may have selected or picked some crews from 106 on which he was operating, but if he did, why did he pick a crew that he sent back the day after they arrived on squadron because he didn't think they were right? So that gives the lie to the fact that he selected. If he he wouldn't have selected somebody he didn't that he was going to sack two days later, one day later, which he did do. The selection of the of the of the two Labrador lamps was not due to him viewing the uh, going at an Ensa show. That was developed by. A, Ministry of Aircraft Production official. Uh, 
there was another point somewhere I was going to make that slightly different, but uh, I think that yeah, the film was okay in the bulk of the respects, but it had those deficiencies and that certain technical, uh, well, certain facets of it was was not true to fact. Did you think that Richard Todd caught um, Guy Gibson well? I think, I think Richard Todd and Bar and Michael Redgrave were excellent. Yeah, excellent portrayals on were the right choices to portray Gibson and Barnswellers. In that respect, I think they were, they were, they, they could have done better. Dave Homewood.